Welcome to the Radio Book Club, which is a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm at Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsen Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Joining us, we're here at KGNU with another local author and a book that I have to say has been an absolute delight to read. So who have we been reading for the month of March? We're reading Stephen Schwartz with his new novel, The Tenderest of Strings. And like you said, it's a wonderful novel. I'm not surprised. I've read a novel and book of short stories by Stephen in the past, and I love them. And this is no exception. Well, Stephen is joining us here. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. All the way from Fort Collins. Yes. The literary hub of northern Colorado. <laughs> it's getting there. <laughs> it's such a beautiful title, and I think it really is so evocative of the emotion and the themes of the book. And basically the book is about a family from Chicago, husband and wife and their two sons, who moved to a town in, not far from Greeley, but a little bit, you know, east of the Front Range in northern Colorado to kind of start again. And there's lots of things that happen, but really to me what jumped out is just the tenderest of strings, which you describe in the book as, you know, what keeps this family together for better and for worse. So take us through the title and how that relates to the book itself. Absolutely. It's very hard sometimes to find a title for a book or even a short story unless it just immediately occurs to you. And sometimes I've just thought of a title and written the whole story out of it. I have a collection called To Leningrad in Winter. And I thought I heard a student say that phrase when I was teaching at CSU. I don't think I really did, but my imagination formed these words. But this title was very difficult. Um, I Originally, the book was called The Why of Harry. It was called The Rosenfelds of the Rockies. It was called New West. And not until I finished this draft and I was going to, I, I don't even know what the... I think it was House of Salt was the most recent title. Um, did I come up with The Tenderest of Strings? And it just, again, just popped into my head, and I immediately went to Google, and I wanted to see if it's been used or you know, where it might have come from. And there was one very arcane reference to it about a symphony. And I thought, okay, this is the title because it has the word tenderness in it. And yet it's about the ties that bind. And I wanted to get across that idea of how fragile these ties are. And the why of Harry, that's actually a phrase that's used quite a little bit in the book because Harry is one of the sons. So there's the family, the Rosenfelds from Chicago, move out to this town, Welton, Colorado, with their two sons, Harry and Jamie, who then becomes James as he becomes a teenager. And Harry, the why of Harry is the parents trying to figure out who Harry is, what's up with Harry, how can we deal with Harry? What, what is the why of Harry? I was thinking about this on the way down from Fort Collins, and my son now is a second-year psychiatric resident out in Utah, and we often talk about how difficult it is to pinpoint what exactly is going on when there's an emotional or mental disorder. Even with schizophrenia, there's still no lesion like there is in regular medicine to account for why somebody behaves that way. And I, I think there's so much frustration among parents sometimes when they have a child who is acting out 
and they really don't know why. They've done everything correctly. But it's the, nat- it's the mystery, I should say, of nature versus nurture. And I don't know when you can ever definitively solve that question. Now, Harry is somebody who has been acting out. He is unhappy. He wasn't happy in Chicago. They, they moved to this fictitious town, Welton, to try and help him. And in fact, things get worse for him there. And um, Reuben, one of the main characters, just thinks about it and talks with his wife, Ardeth, about it. The why of Harry? What is the reason for our son's behavior? Why is he so unhappy? Why does he dislike us? Why can't he adjust in school? What What is this mood that we can't solve? And they try all sorts of things. They go to psychiatrists. They, they uh, try them on different medications. And it's uh, perplexing. So, you know, you're mentioning Harry. And Harry and Reuben and Ard- Ardeth and Reuben are the two parents. James. There's also several other characters, Wade, the sheriff, um, lots of great characters. So I wanted to, you know, when you talked about the tenders to strings and that one reference you found was referenced a, a symphony. And when I read this, I almost felt like it was a symphony. Like you have, you, at first you think, oh, this is Rubin's book. And then for a while you think, oh, this is artist's book. Oh, then you think, oh, this is Harry's book, you know? And, and, um, so as an author, how do you bring all those pieces together? How do you how do you weave it or how do you conduct the symphony when you when you really don't have one lead character, you have several? That's an excellent question. And when you're writing a novel, it's so different than a short story. Um, a short story usually has one character's point of view. Sometimes you don't need to know what the setting is. It can be a, anonymous. Um, you really don't need to know what the characters do for work. But in a novel, you have to answer all those questions. And most of all, you have to decide how many points of view are you going to tell in this story? And are they going to compete with each other or are they going to complement one another? So I, as an author, have to decide how much territory I give Reuben, how much I give to Ardeth, and how much I give to Harry. And then the other character who has a point of view is Louisa. And... With the characters who I don't go into their point of view, I still have to describe them in some way that makes them memorable. But here's the trick. Some characters are more interesting from the outside than they are from the inside. And if you look at novels, you'll see that, that oftentimes, yes, the characters that are, when you're in their mind and you know what their thoughts are, are, they're very well developed, you really understand their humanity, But if you sometimes just develop a character from the outside, take, for instance, Gatsby (laughs) in The Great Gatsby. Take um, Bartleby in Bartleby the Scrivener or Kurtz in in where he is told about through uh, Marlowe. These characters, they remain more fascinating from the outside than they do if we were inside their heads and knew what was going on. So, you know, you sacrifice, in a sense, that great development, that consciousness for more intriguing sort of mystery. And that's what I more or less had to do here with with some of these characters. I could not go into Tom's point of view. I could not go into uh, Marion's point of view. And I was very careful to be limited in how much we told about Harry 
because in this novel, all the characters have some sort of secret that they're holding back. So I was wondering if you could read for us. You're going to read right from the first page, and then we can talk a bit more. And I will say that you you referenced three of my very favorite <laughs> classic American works, basic. Well, I guess Conrad's not, but you have Heart Joseph, of Darkness. Yeah, Heart of Darkness, Gats, yeah. Great Gatsby, and, of course, the Melville short story, Bartleby the Scrivener. I mean, so those are – you're working from some pretty good uh, yeah. you know, people there. And in none of those <laughs> – do you actually go inside the minds of the major characters? They're mm -hmm. all seen the caraways. We see it in Gatsby through his eyes. And that's a choice that a writer has to make. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So this is from the uh, very first page of the novel, and I'm only going to read this page. In the emergency room, Reuben's son Harry, 14 years old, sat on the end of the examining table. His new sneakers were caked with mud. He had his head down and a wad of gauze in his mouth where his tooth had just been knocked out. When Reuben walked in, Harry looked up. You okay? Reuben asked him. Harry took the gauze out of his mouth. What? I said, are you okay? His son's hair fell loosely over his forehead, his eyes hooded in fallen grace. The single left dimple of his infrequent smile nowhere to be found. He had a gorgeous olive skin, a wide sculpted mouth like his mother's, and a strong angular nose of Semitic nobility, even if he had been kicked out of Hebrew school in Chicago. Which one is it? Reuben asked. Harry pulled down his bottom lip, revealing a somber black gap. He was supposed to get braces soon. An orthodontist back in Chicago had advised him them to wait until he was at least 13. That was more than a year ago, before they moved to Welton, Colorado, and now Harry had entered his teenage years with a windy hole in his mouth. Braces would have to be deferred until they fixed this breach. Wade Mitchell, Welton's police chief, and Reuben's sometimes lunch companion came in. He'd been in the waiting room filling out paperwork at the reception desk. Twenty minutes ago, he'd called Reuben from his squad car to say that he'd found Harry, who was supposed to be in school, walking along the old Welton Highway and holding his hand to his mouth with blood gushing out between his fingers. That was all Reuben knew before he sped out to the Greeley emergency room after giving permission for Harry to be treated. That is author Stephen Schwartz reading right from the beginning of his latest novel, The Tenderest of Strings. Now, poor Harry is in the emergency room. It's not the only time something happens and, and we find out afterwards what has happened. But you mentioned the secrets. All the characters have secrets and, and very often Harry's secret is who's inflicted the trauma on him, whether it's this incident or a, a subsequent one. And a lot of the secrets intersect. So Harry's secret is connected to his mother's secret. And there's a lot of plot in this book as well. In addition to wonderful characters and the intersection of the characters and the emotional development, there's a lot of stuff that's happening too and a lot of intersection of all of that stuff. And I'm trying to not give away a lot of the, the wonderful plot points in this, but I was surprised at how much plot you know, there is in this, as well as how much character, wonderful writing about characters' interior and exterior lives. This is always the challenge, and I can't tell you how many drafts this book went through and how hard it was to make it synchronized. And what I'm interested in as a writer, I think what most writers are interested in, is that nexus between character, plot, and voice or style, if you, if you want to have it that way. Um, 
And you're always trying to balance that out. So one of the things I always would tell my students is that regardless of what kind of form you have for your work, any kind of narrative has to move deep and forward. And the forward axis is horizontal, and that's really your action, your plot. But the vertical axis is meaning and purpose. That's where you get attached to characters. And you cannot have one without the other. So when I was doing early drafts of this, it was all character. It was all voice. And I didn't even have the hit and run, which forms a major part of the book. So I realized that, no, I have to find the incidents here that the characters react to, but you're always trying to find that reciprocal relationship between you know, what's happening to a character and how much you care about that character, because it doesn't matter what happens to that character if you don't care about it, him or her. Yeah, I think the character, we're talking about going deep with the character, like I said, at first you think it's Ruben's book, then you think it's Artith's book, and Artith, um, I think it's early in the book, so I think we can give a little away. Oh, yes, sure. yeah. I yeah. think you know Artith ends up having an affair with the town, right. town doctor, and I think we need to say that. And so, so right away, you might not <clears throat> sympathize with her, but I think you you do a great job with her. Do you feel like when you have a character that's doing something that might be hurting another character? How do you gain sympathy for that character? How do you is that is that an extra challenge as a writer? It is, and I've already talked to a, a couple of book groups, and um, inevitably, they have problems with Ardeth because of what she does. She's in a twenty-year marriage, and then she has this affair, um, and then I have to sort of explain that just because characters make bad choices doesn't make them bad people. And my job as a writer is to make you care about that character in spite of whatever bad choice they're going to make. And so I'm not there to judge the character. I'm there to sort of make clear their motivation and how they got into this situation. In Ardeth's case, she's been in this long marriage. She's been taking care of Reuben, Harry, Jamie. Before that, she took care of her mother, who had dementia. She's really had no life of her own. Uh, her father dies when she's young. And then suddenly somebody comes along and gives her all this attention at this moment, and she makes this choice. Um, I love a quote by uh, a writer who said, I start with characters I love, and then I visit trouble upon them. And so... My job is to start with characters I love, be compassionate towards them, but there's no book unless you visit trouble in some way. Well, Ardith's secret, the first secret of several secrets, is this affair, and then that is intertwined with many other secrets, and there's a, it's almost like peeling back of an onion. The secrets are revealed to different people at different points until almost at the, the very end, there's this huge big reveal by Ardith herself. Was that something you wanted to kind of parse out? How do we reveal these secrets? Not all at once, but, you know, piece by piece. Good question. For instance, the page I just read uh, where Harry loses his tooth and he won't tell how that's happened or he, he claims that he fell Originally, I had that scene where we would learn right away, but 
I decided to start the book with it, and not until we get halfway through do we learn why. So yes, what you're talking about is these reveals, and when do, when do you reveal the, these secrets? And you have to find the right time when they make the most impact. Um, Artith certainly has, you know, t- not told Ruben. She keeps she 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 she. There's something that happens to her. Uh, that's very important, and and so it keeps escalating the pressure for her to explain and reveal a secret. But that's what makes tension in a book because the more the secrets build, the more pressure there is until they eventually have to come out. There was one I thought very interesting interaction between Ardith and Harry because Harry is also the keeper of other people's secrets because he knows more you know, than other people, but he doesn't let on necessarily. And at one point later on in the book, I mean, his parents, Ardith and Reuben, throughout his whole life, it seems, have been wringing their hands over the, the why of Harry, as we yeah. talked about earlier. And he turns the tables on his mom and said, you know, it's about you. Why don't you look at what you're at? I mean, I'm, I'm not quoting directly here, but he, he essentially turns the table and Ardith is like, it's me. <laughs> I need to examine my own actions and intentions here. We've had all this attention focusing on the why of Harry. What about the why of everybody else? Yeah, Harry has to grow from just this troubled adolescent in the book who is acting out and seems almost mean to somebody who gets wiser as the book gets on. And the the particular scene you're describing, Maeve, is when there's actually a reversal and Harry becomes more the parent there. Um, There's a very kind of uh, close relationship between Ardith and Harry. They are more alike than they realize. And um, Harry has carried her secret for a long time. And at some point, he gets fed up. And he he tells her, and she's taken aback, as, as you say. And she has to examine all of her actions up until this point. So the book is set in um, outside of Greeley, say, maybe 45 mm-hmm. minutes outside of Greeley, if I remember, to the east of it, I think. Right. Yeah. So you're kind of out there. And there's other writers who have mined that kind of territory, Colorado writers. Uh, Kent Harris right. comes to mind. Talk about that setting. And then also you're in this area that, you know, off the – not off the grid, but, you know, out of, off the beaten path, let's say. And then – um. You've got Ruben, who was a Chicago newspaper guy, is now running a small town weekly, which I actually worked at a small town weekly in 1989, and most of them have not fared very well (laughs) in the intervening 30 years. So he's kind of in a, I don't want to say dead end town, but he's out of the way town in a dead end industry, sort of. And talk about that decision to do, you know, have him in that in that uh, setting. When I started this book, journalism wasn't in the shape it is now with so many small papers closing. Um, So, uh, yes, this is a a challenge for Ruben. It's always been a dream. And, of course, once he gets there, um, with his dyspeptic personality, he finds that it's much more than he can really handle. Um, But still, he's trying, and he does try to make a go of it and, and does to some extent. The book, in my mind, is more modeled after towns like Wellington and Windsor. Uh, it's a kind of step back in time. There's a barber shop. There's a coffee shop that doesn't even serve espresso. espresso. There's a parade. Um, and 
I, I was fascinated by uh, this place, and I was fascinated by how times towns sometimes don't progress in, in a way that other places like Fort Collins growing exponentially do, or Boulder, for instance. Mm-hmm. Did you go visit some of these towns? In the- Not only did I visit, I went to the Windsor Beacon, which is no longer in uh, operation now, and I spent some time there doing research on a small paper, and I walked up and down the streets of Windsor, and this one was when before Windsor, Windsor exploded in population, um, and I just walked all around every day for I don't know how many days just to get the feel of the town. So I could feel like, you know, these characters have moved here. Well, the paper, I think, is such a reflection of the values of the town and almost the dynamic of kind of growing, but we really want to stay small town. You know, Ruben tries to do, I think, some articles about growth and various different things. But really, people just want to read the recipes or there's a a character who I just thought was really funny, Jolene, who who writes for the paper. She's not a journalist by any stretch, but I think she thinks she is more than she is. And she has a recipe column and then she gets into trouble because she does this kind of risque, silly things kids say, you know, that are a little bit, you know, innuendos more than anything. And um. It was just so sweet. But this tension of what these small town newspapers are, I mean, can they do journalism or is, is it really a repository of just sort of the the small town nature uh, of where they are? Well, I, I think a lot of small town papers do do real journalism. Um, Ruben's trying uh, and... But he's bringing an outsider's point of view, and that's one of the themes of the novel. And I'm sure you see here in Boulder, people come from all over California, and then you have people who are natives here, and that's that's the clash that's in in the book. And it takes place in this microcosm of this uh, uh, paper's office. Um, and yes, there's uh, Jolene there, who uh, who writes reviews of not real restaurants but Arby's and. Taco Bell, and she doesn't. That was brilliant. And she doesn't understand why Ruben says to her, "Maybe you know, we don't need to review these places." But you know, she writes these reviews where she comments on the artificial foliage in Arby's, for instance. Yeah, they they move to this place. He's working in a newspaper, the town, um, you know, small town, and also the house they buy. The house is falling apart as much as the family's falling apart. It's also held together by strings or less. And um, I thought the house itself was almost a character and how you couldn't get in the front door or the back door. And, you know, it's constantly these issues with just getting in and out of the house. A house is a metaphor for what's happening to the family, essentially. They think uh, they're going to just take command of this fixer-upper. And, I mean, it goes along with this whole theme that they move out there like many people do in in the West, they they come here for reinvention. They want to start their lives over. Um, they want to do things that they haven't done in before. And so, essentially, they buy a, they have a fixer upper that is far more than they could imagine, and just as overwhelming. It does get fixed up little bits here and there. As you said, it's a metaphor for maybe the family itself. And so as a porch stair gets fixed, things seem to resolve itself a little bit in the family. But I think even kids stop by on Halloween. They think, oh, this is the haunted house. And it's like, no, not officially. It just looks (laughs) like that. Very sweet. 
You mentioned Tom earlier as one of the mm-hmm. characters and he's the town doctor who has the affair with Ardeth. But for different reasons, you know, we, we don't know that much about Tom. And as you said, this is not one of the characters that we know they're internal. You know, we're not getting their point of view. Talk a little bit about him because we learn so much through other people about Tom. It's really about other people's impression of Tom. And he seems like, you know, a good guy, albeit with his own secrets too. Tom and Reuben are really posited against each other. Uh, Tom is like Robert Redford. Um, he is super capable. He's the town doctor. He's got tremendous charisma. Everybody loves him. He's the ultimate insider, whereas Reuben's the outsider. But I've been thinking about it lately, and I, I think Tom is what you might call a guileless narcissist. He doesn't really mean harm. But he can't resist an opportunity. He sees a chance to make Ardeth happy, and he feels like he's the man to do it. And he doesn't think out the consequences. And it's only later that we learn about a previous relationship, which has had some catastrophic consequences, and, you know, understand more about him. I think people or the readers really have to decide, like, is this really a bad guy? Is he a good guy? Is he just thoughtless? But again, that more or less guileless, just somebody who's had everything come to him all his life and doesn't believe he's like the rest of us in terms of what he has to face. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, it's a very interesting way to think about it. I mean, you know, I, I was taken by him at first, and then as you go on, like you say, you some people you feel like get better as the book goes on, like Harry, mm-hmm. and some people you feel get worse, you know, as you learn more. Um, but at the heart of the book is this marriage, you know, mm-hmm. Ar- Ardith and Reuben, and is there any coming back from this um, affair? And and uh, and he gets some encouragement from his his friend Lyle, sort of like you got to get back into the house, but it's. It's not that easy. I mean, I think you did a really good job, a very realistic job of having to deal from with a trauma in a marriage like that. And, of course, they've had the kids. They're both very involved in the kids. It's not like either one's going to walk away, and it's a small town they're in now. It's not like they're in Chicago where you could just not see each other for months at a time, you know. So I think you did a really interesting job hanging in there with the two of them in this kind of battered state. One of my writer friends has said, that there's something called a one-way gate. And when a character goes through that, there's no going back. It's like there's treadles there. You can't reverse. And that's essentially what happens. Uh, Ardeth initiates that one-way gate. And then it becomes the central conflict in the marriage. And at some point, Reuben thinks there's a, 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 a scar, or it was actually Ardeth who thinks that could, can you repair this scar in in a marriage? Can it can it be redeemed? And I guess I wanted to make it an open question in that way by two people who do love each other, but after certain actions, is it possible to go on? And I think that's the open question throughout the the novel. And I'm not sure it gets fully answered, but I did find the ending to be ultimately very satisfactory but there was so much going on as we said there's a huge amount of plot that we're only scratching the surface on because we'd only give it away 
So in addition to resolution around the plot, I, I found there was a very satisfactory emotional resolution, albeit the continuation of the messiness of all of these relationships. Yeah, somebody asked me, uh, why don't you tell us exactly what's going to happen? And I had two answers for that. I said, you know, a, a quote that a friend, of, a writer friend of mine has said that the ending of a, of a novel or a story, especially a story, is not a, necessarily a full stop. It can be a horizon. But the other thing is, when you close down a book at the end and you say, this happened, you miss the emotional resonance. And I want the reader to be left with an emotional feeling rather than just, here's the, here's the piece of the plot you were looking for. I wanted to go on beyond the reading. And um, that's more important to me than solving the, a, a puzzle. Well, I think you pulled it off. And I have to say, well, it really you. was a delight to read. But we're going to have more conversation with Stephen Schwartz in the After Hours at the Radio Book Club edition. That's podcast only. So make sure you are subscribed to the Radio Book Club podcast so you can get more of that conversation. But in the meantime, Stephen Schwartz, thank you so much. Thank you. The Tenderest of Strings has been the March selection for the Radio Book Club. But Arson, as we are approaching spring, what are we reading now for the month of April? We're going to read um, Erica Krause's book, Tell Me Everything. This is nonfiction. It's a memoir kind of mixed with true crime. And Erica talks about the time when she was a private investigator. And so the book is kind of her learning to be a private investigator and then getting a very uh, a case where by about a woman who was sexually assaulted on a college campus and unraveling that. And so we're actually going to do this as a live event at the Boulder Bookstore on April 26th. So you can come join us and watch us make the show. Come join us then and tune in just two days after that, because on the fourth Thursday, which I believe is April 28th at 9 a.m., you can catch that here on KGNU. But don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can listen to all the back episodes and never miss an episode. The Radio Book Club is a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.